Hi everyone, I'm Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. I've been a space and astronomy journalist for about 20 years now, and I like to bring you behind the scenes and show you some of the actual astronomers, astronauts, people who are doing the work. And this is going to be another one of those interviews. So today I'm joined by Dr. Thane Curry. Thane, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So, uh, so who are you? What do you do? All right. So, uh, as you said, I'm Thane Curry. I sort of wear two hats. So I have an affiliate position at the Super Telescope as an astronomer. And I also uh, am affiliated um, with the NASA Amos Research Center as a contractor through Eureka Scientific. I want to find the next Earth and I want to understand the, the context to which the solar system was born. And so my focus is trying to uh, directly image those uh, you know, answers to those questions. So studying planet formation and directly image the planets themselves. And you actually reach out to me on, on Twitter, which is very rare. I wish more astronomers would actually do this. And I guess, you know, we followed each other for, for a little while, but you're like, we've got some big news coming out on Monday. Are you interested in, in talking with someone? And, and so we covered it on Universe Today, but then we booked an actual interview because this is a topic that I'm really, really fascinated about. So first, let's, start, let's talk, talk about the news, and then we'll talk about the part that, that I'm really fascinated about. Uh, so what did you, what have you discovered, uncovered, observed? Well, we end up getting a, a conclusion that we did not expect when I started on this journey about five years ago. So we think that we found evidence for a wide separation protoplanet. So that's a planet in the process of forming, you know, still in, still in the process of assembly or is still embedded in this natal gas and dust. We, th we think that we found evidence for it at a sort of a wide separation. So about three times the separation between the Sun and Neptune around this uh, well, very well-known star called Abiariga. Um, you know, so this, you know, if you talk to people in the planet formation community, Abiriga is one of those, one of those things that a lot of people know by name. It sort of rings a bell. And so we found it, we think we find evidence for this protoplanet embedded in the disk around Abiriga. And it seems like this, uh, if we look at other characteristics of the system, um, this may be best explained by an alternate theory scenario, which is the canonical core accretion model. And so when we think about how, say, Jupiter and Saturn and other giant planets form, what is this, this traditional theory? Sure. So the traditional theory sort of, it sort of starts from the ground up. You know, so you have very sort of micron-sized dust grains that stick together into slightly larger ones, into pebble-sized objects, and then eventually to the boulder-sized objects. And then for the things like the Earth or Mars or Venus, um, you know, they grow to being, you know, maybe that's a, you know, have cores the size of the moon and they collide together and they eventually become, you know, the terrestrial planets. Right. So for things like Jupiter and Saturn, we think they, they, the core, those cores grow large enough that they start to accrete the gaseous envelope from the protoplanetary disk around them. So the tip is sort of the, the trigger for that um, on the order of a few times the mass of the Earth, like it, it, depending on which, which theories you talk to. All right. So that's the sort of canonical model for core, the accretion of um, core, of gas around these cores. So this is the core accretion model. Right. And so it does a good job of explaining these are the characteristics of the mass of planets in our own solar system. And a lot of sort of the demographics of planets we've identified through surveys, through both indirect methods and also through direct imaging. But it struggles at very wide separations. You know, so you know, many times the separation of things in our own solar system. Now we found planets of those separations through direct imaging. We found a few of them. Um, but we, you know, so the question is, how did they form? 
And I think we think that this discovery provides uh, a partial answer to that question. Namely, they form it through an entirely different mechanism. Uh, so, uh, I'll bite. What's that mechanism? So the mechanism is disk or gravitational instability. And so this idea has been around for a very long time, actually. Um, I think, you know, even as, as far as I can remember, I, I think it was even debated back in the 50s or 60s or 70s. Um, I mean, the, the early researchers like uh, uh, Safranov and Weatherall probably uh, debated it when they were advocating their own um, models for early core accretion um, you know, you know, simulations. So it's disk instability is a sort of this top-down uh, mechanism where the disk beco actually becomes gravitationally unstable and regions of it start to fragment and, and collapse into clumps. It was revived in the 1990s by Ellen Boss at the Carnegie Institution. And he's been sort of like the, the chief uh, torchbearer for this, uh, for this model, to put it lightly. He's, he's, he, he's very well known as, as an advocate of this theory. Very excited and, that you found this evidence. Oh, sure. he, he like, it was so like, I sent him an email. I figured when it was like in 2020 or 2021, it's like, Hey, Alan, I, we have a result you'll be really interested in. And I just kind of left it at that. And so because we're sort of like left him hanging for at least a year. And then I finally sent him the paper uh, um, in March and he, he was, he was quite happy. And, and so what's going on then? So with with the the disk instability uh, with with the disk instability uh, formation mechanism, so you have the regions fragment into clumps, and so you have gas giant planet formation from the top down, can that can happen at various very wide separations very rapidly, right? So the weakness with core uh, the, with core accretion is that it takes a long time to kind of get to the point where you can form something several times the mass of the Earth to be able to create gas around it. And in order for it to have a gas giant planet formed by core accretion, not only does it have to happen, um, does, does the core have to form uh, before the nebular gas dissipates, but you have to have enough gas left over in the first place to be able to you know, have something, you know, the mass of, of Jupiter or Saturn or even more massive um, form from that. That's very tough to do at 90 AU, which is uh, close to the separation in which we find this, uh, this, pr this protoplanet. Right, that's like double the distance to Pluto. Like that's yeah, really like far double away. Double distance to Pluto. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and so it, I guess I'm envisioning, with the traditional sense, you've got like a bunch of little pebbles that that accrete larger and larger objects, smash into each other, planetoids. Eventually, they scoop up the surrounding gas, and you've got a planet made of whatever is the raw materials in that in that area. But but what you're describing is like more like the way the star itself forms out of a solar nebula that some blob of material is far away from the star and through its mutual gravity collapses down into a planet of its own and whatever raw material you had in that area to work with but it's not like it's it's not like the material is being parceled out to different planetary orbits everything is ending up in this one planet that's out there I think that's, that's fairly similar to how I would describe it. I mean, if you look at the models for uh, for planet formation by disk instability, they end up showing like these very pronounced spiral arms, or spiral density waves uh, in the disk. It, it actually makes the whole entire sort of entire planetary system look almost like a galaxy. This is really really cool. Yeah. And we and this is what we see with Averiga. You know, we have, there are multiple spiral arms uh, in the disk around Averiga on hundreds of AU scale. So the, this is a huge system. And, you know, so I think in sort of way, if, if 
if there is one very well-known uh, planetary you know, system with, with a, a disk around it, that might be a, a good candidate for planet formation by disk instability. Abiriga would be near the top of the list. It's just until now, we hadn't actually found the smoking gun for right. something that might be that, um, that embedded, that protoplanet that is just formed. So what was the technique and series of instruments that were required to, to gather this data? Sure. So the primary one that we used uh, was on the Subaru telescope. So this is called the Subaru Chronographic Extreme Adaptive Optics Project, or Skexio uh, in shorthand. Uh, so this is an extreme adaptive optics system. You know, so different than most facility AO systems, you know, so you can kind of sort of think of it like it's like the, uh, you know, what you get as with the observatory to sort of like a general use instrument. Extreme AO is different in that the, uh, is that the system typically corrects atmospheric turbulence faster and with a deformable mirror that has many more that has a higher density of actuators across the across the uh, telescope pupil basically that means that you can correct for atmospheric turbulence faster and with and with greater precision hmm. so we use that uh, adaptive optic system to be able to get really sharp images of abiriga starting in about 2016 and when we fed that sharp and starlight um to a science camera, and the first first one we used was this now decommissioned camera called Haichao, and then the integral field spectrograph called Keras, which allows us to get um, allows us to get images in twenty two different channels at the same time, going from about one microns to about two and a half microns. Right, and so that's firmly in the infrared. That is firmly in the yeah. infrared. Yes, yes. So that that sort of like forms the backbone of of the study. I mean, the, the choice to actually image the system in the first place was kind of an afterthought. It was kind of an accident. You know, when we first, when we went to the telescope on our first uh, uh, um, data set where we actually got a detection, we were trying to observe something else, actually. So it's actually the, the system now with refuted protoplanets, the calcium-15, so it's a different, you know, different system. But that's a really faint star, and for whatever reason, we had trouble um, getting a good correction on that star. So we think, okay, well, um, our data is going to be useless unless we try to observe something else. And just Abiriga was the first thing that popped in, into my head. Yeah, you know, that you know, these things happen, right? And we get it. We get this detection of this blob, and you know, it's, it's kind of peculiar. I was like, oh, no, it's probably a processing artifact. All these are. Nature hates us. So, you know, then we get another detection. It's like, well, it's a really persistent blob. And we just kind of get this gradual accumulation of evidence that starts to, um, um, you know, change our thinking as to what exactly we were seeing. And you've been observing this now for enough years that this blob is moving, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So if we just look at the Subaru data itself, there does seem to be uh, evidence for or orbital motion. The position and angle of this blob does seem to be changed. So it does seem to be moving counterclockwise. But you know, the real telltale, the real proof would be is that if we observe it on a longer time scale, right? Now, unfortunately, we couldn't yeah. go back in time with right. with our instrument because it ha it had actually been commissioned until like the the like twenty fifteen or, or twenty sixteen or so. So we couldn't go back in time. So the next best thing we do was look around to see who else observed uh, observed the system. Uh -huh. And that's where the Hubble Space Telescope comes right in. You know, and the, the image actually right behind you was yep. the archival detection of, um, of this 
uh, of this point, uh, uh, Riga B, uh, with the now decommissioned um, and dead, basically, uh, Nikmas uh, camera. And that's it, the, the sort of white blob down at the, exactly. bo- at the bottom of the of where the star is. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But but on this image, the the star is blotted out by a chronograph. Yes. D- does Hubble have a chronograph? Yeah. So okay. so Nick so Nick Moss uh, when it was operational did have a, a chronograph mask, um, and so like um, you you see that that uh, dark circle is very large. You know, it just happens to be small enough that it doesn't block the uh, the detection of of this of this protoplanet. Right. Um, the current is current instrument on the Hubble Space Telescope, STIS, which is operating in, at visible wavelengths, uh, that also has um, a suite of like bars or other uh, masks that operate as a chronograph. So Hubble does have chronographic capability. Okay, okay, all right. But I mean, it's funny, though, because like you are pushing the technology to the utter limits, both in terms of what Hubble can do and what Subaru can do from down here on Earth. But there are a suite of instruments that are in the works, either recently launched or uh, under construction now that are going to change, they're going to change everything for for what you're doing. Um, And there's also but I want to and we'll talk about sort of the future of of just this whole Mm -hmm. science in a second. But um, this idea of protoplanetary systems looking like tiny little solar systems. um, We've seen this quite a bit through radio observations and microwave observations. So was this a surprise? That they that protoplanets looked more like tiny galaxies than records. Well, I I, th- I think expect from um, from a disk that's gravitationally stable, but only a subset of them show show those 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 features. I mean, there's there's a great diversity um, in the uh, appearance of, mm-hmm. of, pro- of protoplanetary disks uh, from you know in the radio or in the submillimeter, like from the Alma or other facilities. Right, so we there are probably a lot of different mechanisms going on uh, in these systems that may be dominant in one and but not dominant in, in, in the other. Um, the other proto- system with uh, confirmed protoplanets, PDS seventy, is a little bit different. You know, so it doesn't have like seven or eight spiral arms like um, you know Abiriga has, but you know, in you know it has this cleared cavity, and then there are these two protoplanets that are sitting uh, in the middle of this cleared uh, cleared cavity. Right. So there's a great diversity in the uh, appearance of, of, protoplan- of, uh, of protoplanetary disks and um, the sort of the general morphology or structure of, um, of planetary systems in the process of forming. I mean, I, there's, there was like a, a list of images that came out from the ALMA telescope uh, within the last year or so. And it was about I feel like it was about 20 or 30 of these planetary systems that are that show these incredible features. Like I said, some are have concentric rings, some have almost spiral arms going on. And so I guess that's what I was wondering. It was just like that the concentric rings make sense because you've got planets that are forming in these in these rings. But to see these more interesting structures, it makes you wonder is is are there inflows of gas? Is there a much faster um, migration of the planets than were originally expected, especially early on. So do you think we're kind of at that point now to get a sense of, of how planetary systems work early on? Well, I, I think we're at the point where it's clear there's a, you know, 
that there are diverse images of, of these protoplanetary disks that you know, identify a lot of different dominant processes uh, uh, going on for sure. And I think what's really exciting is that once you have discoveries like the PDS-70 protoplanets or, or this one, that really spurs uh, or justifies a lot of uh, dedicated follow-up work um, that maybe if we look a little bit more closely at some of these other uh, protoplanetary disks that do show some of the features that you described, we may find um, examples of the these of the two kinds of pro, you know, protoplanets that we've identified thus far, or maybe even something entirely different from, um, you know, or at least a little bit different from from PDS-70 or AB Riga itself. I mean, that those are really open questions, I think. But I think just having these two discoveries. Uh, really, you know, breaks open the dam to to study to really focusing on on this kind of uh, on this area of science further. The the PDS seventy image, and I, I apologize because I'm gonna have to sort of like explain it, and it's it's you know it's like dancing about architecture. Um, is I I use that as a the opening slide for a talk that I gave a couple of years ago as like one of the most important images that I had ever seen in twenty plus years of of astronomy journalism because it is an actual photograph of an actual planet that is actually forming around another star that it is you know all of the planets the 5000 planets that are in the exoplanet surveys that we know of so far they are using the radial velocity method using the transit method using the microlensing method and a couple others as well pulsars things like that but but we're now taking pictures of planets directly. And now all these problems where your planet has to be perfectly lined up with the star, that all goes away. So where we stand right now with the current instruments that you have at your disposal, what are the limitations of of what is possible in direct imaging of exoplanets? Sure. Um, I guess first to start, I mean, I agree with you that the direct imaging itself is exciting. I mean, you know, I put sort of smuggling you know, i i like planets i can see <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> right right yeah. I, I i'm really biased on it but you know I, I like planets i can see not those that i can sort of like infer through a series of uh through a series of arguments based on physics but you know, I, seeing is believing uh but where where are we right now i think we're still at the point where we can only detect planets that are um uh, that are self-luminous and they're young you know so even the best systems on ground-based telescopes um right now are, are can get can get contrast in order of like 10 to the minus seven so you know that's what like a 10 million to one that's good enough to detect on a you know if we know exactly where to look that's good enough to detect maybe a young jupiter analog now when you say self self-luminous you mean like it like it's giving off enough heat that it's perceptible in the infrared spectrum and you're not trying to rely just on the reflected light of it correct yeah, yeah. so we're not seeing light reflected uh, reflected uh, from the star, we're actually seeing internal, you know, internal heat from the planet. So the planet is is collapsing, um, you know, shrinking in radius. So it's releasing that uh, gravitational potential energy, and it's you know it's shining. So that's that's what we're seeing when we're seeing all these images of um, you know like planets around H eight seven nine nine or or any other sort of you know emblematic uh, planet. That's what we're seeing. So we're kind of we're kind of stuck at that point until we can get to contrast another factor of ten or factor twenty better. You know, so below ten to the minus about ten to the minus eight or so below. Now that would be good enough to start to detect planets in reflective light. Mm -hmm. You know, 
And so then we don't really care quite so much when uh, whether or not the uh, the system is young. And so the planets have to be self-luminous and so they'd be so they would shine enough for us to be able to see them. But we, we can just um, you know, we can look at systems that are have ages comparable to the sun, for example. So the, so that that's a very different kind of uh, expansive phase space that we cannot uh, really uh, access right now. But I think even right now, it's still very, very exciting. What yeah. We're and so like, what is the state of the art? What would you say is like the most powerful direct imaging tool at our disposal today? Okay. So I think the most, you know, and keep in mind, I'm, you know, I have, you know, I'm going to be a little bit biased in this. I think the most, Skexio is the mo I would say is the most advanced. Then the one that has demonstrated demonstrated the best performance right now is sphere on the vlt right um you know, relies on technology that's a little bit older but it is so well honed it is so well optimized you know and that's what you can do when you have an army of people who you know who are very talented work very hard who you know threw all their effort at, at at one instrument so i think you know those two instruments right now one in the north and one in the south are kind of at the leading edge of uh of what we can do with uh, high contrast imaging. And, and so really, we're limited to young stars, hot planets, ideally a fairly big separation between the star and the planet, and a, a fairly, you know, by a factor of what did you say of a few million in terms of the brightness of the star compared to the brightness of the planet that the coronagraph can actually block out. That's the that's the state today. So what's coming? What what telescopes or instruments are around the corner? They're going to give us the ability to push this envelope. Sure, I think you'll see two. Um, you know, okay, I think there's like three major advances. So one is that um, first, right, you know, right on the uh, the front burner, the James Webb Space Telescope will have some truly transformative high contrast imaging properties. You know, it's an only six half six and a half meter telescope. It's optimized at longer wavelengths, and so it's not going to be able to look as I think not going to be able to do quite as well looking very close to the star and uh, as, as sphere or maybe Skexio, um, you know, in, in, in my opinion, you know, hmm. th those instruments will still win um, by uh, perhaps by a substantial margin, but it will be exceptional at getting uh, direct images of, of planets around the nearest stars that are maybe a little bit old and that are still shining. The planets are still shining and the, the mid-infrared wavelength, so maybe at five microns or 10 microns, which that's really tough to do from the ground, right? Because, you know, the atmosphere exists, you know, and it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's contributing a lot of background uh, emission. So, you know? so, so wait, if, so what's your definition of old, though? Like, sure. Like a couple um, of million years old as opposed to a million years old? No, I think I think here, I think her, my, my definition of old here would be things on the orders of hundreds of millions of millions of years old that's when um the um, that's when the the thermal infrared of the mid infrared really start to completely overpower um our the near infrared in terms of our detection capabilities right and even if even for things you know a giga year old i mean you know james webb would, would be able to uh, potentially detect planets around those stars because they still be have really, some latent heat yeah and that's gonna be really tough from, right. from the ground, just be, unless you can detect planets that reflect the light. That's exciting. But I think, you know, what everybody wants to hear is Earth-sized worlds orbiting around mm -hmm. sun-like stars, or even like an Earth-sized world around a, 
a G type star would be fine. Maybe even Earth sized world around a M dwarf would be okay. But mm-hmm. but a billion year old Jupiter analog around a young star that's only a yeah a billion years old at the maximum. I mean, it's going to be exciting for you guys, but but for us to find out to answer this question, you know, are there other Earths out there? It's it's not going to be able to yeah. To so that that, that goes into the the other two parts of my answer. Yeah. So um so on the ground, what you will see in the near in the next um, five years or so are upgrades to the leading extremeo systems. So upgrades to Sphere, upgrades to Skuxio, upgrades to a GPI. You know, and those will start to push down to ten to my seven levels of contrast. And maybe if we're really lucky, we can get a little bit better. The important thing with those instruments is that they, it's not so much their power in and of themselves, but the fact that they serve as prototypes, the kinds of direct you know, dedicated uh, planet imaging systems we want on 30 meter class telescopes. That will get really interesting because with having a much larger telescope, you get far sharper images. So you look really close to a star compared to what you can do now, even with CAC or VLT or with Subaru. So close that, in fact, you can act, you can access the habitable zone around some of the nearest low mass stars. All right. So the habitable zone, you know, like roughly what we think is kind of equivalent to where the Earth would be around an M star. Um, contrast for an Earth sized planet is about 10 to the minus eight or so. Right, roughly. It's still challenging, but it's not infeasible from the ground in the near future. So, so just to clarify, then you've got you've got to have some kind of light blocking system that is able to factor out ten to the minus eight. What is that? Hundred million? Is that right? Hundred million times, or the planet will be one one hundred millionth the brightness of the star, and you've got to be able to block out that star, but still get the light of the planet and be within the habitable zone. That's tricky. It is challenging, but I think the thing the thing that's exciting is that the leading instruments right now are proving technologies that we will need for, for those capabilities. You know, they give us confidence that we may be able to get to that to that goal. Hmm. Um, you know, it just really depends on the amount of funding, the amount of um, you know some breakthroughs in new uh, wafer control and coronography uh, uh, technologies. I, I, I think we can get there. Um, within the next uh, 15 years. I think that, I think that's uh, definitely feasible. And those are existing telescopes. That's the very large telescope. That's the Subaru. That's CAC. Exactly. Right. Okay. Exactly. Eight meter exactly. class telescopes. Exactly. So if you look at the design, for example, of Skexio, it is very similar to the design of most of what is the planet, planetary systems imager, uh, which is a proposed instrument on uh, on 30 meter telescope. You know, and similarly, like Sphere is prototyping a lot of the technologies we need for, you know, an Earth imaging system around the European Extremely Large Telescope. You know, so we're not we're not going to have this really big telescope and a promise of trying to do this amazingly transformative science and have to start from square one. Right. So we're using the technologies on the current telescopes to get us ready for prime time, to get us ready for, um, you know, being able to do um, that kind of uh, transformative science with a next generation of telescopes. So say we bolt that upgraded version of Sphere, or how do you pronounce it? Skex? Skexio. Yes. Skexio. So we take a Skexio or a Sphere, 
and we bolt that on to say the European Extremely Large Telescope, 39 meter telescope, where does that get us? I think I think that gets us fairly close to where we need to be. Uh, there's still some um, challenges we need to work out, and and this goes into in the weeds of different um, you know error budgets with uh, you know with with you know, you know the wavefront error specifically in terms of chromatic wavefront error. Um, you know, in terms of uh, servo lag, which basically means, you know, by the time you apply some correction to your DM to correct for turbulence in the atmosphere, the atmosphere has already started to change, right? So, so there, there's still, still issues we need to work out. But we, but if we can essentially get these systems like, like Sphere or Skexio working on a much larger telescope, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're in a very, very, very good shape, I think. Um, and when you say good shape, so like, what was the so if the factor is 100 million to get from an M dwarf to a planet in the habitable zone around the M dwarf, what is the factor that we need to get to for a sun like star with a Earth sized planet in the habitable zone? So that so that's true. That's far trickier from the ground. So the contrast we need to be able to detect a true Earth analog around a sun like star is 10 to the minus 10. So. Right. So that's so another the factor billion. of 100 worse. Right. And, 100 billion. And, and I think, you know, I, you know I, I, I've had some discussions with, with many people about, about, you know, whether this is even possible from the ground. Um, you know, I, I, I take the optimistic position, which, you know, I think, you know, Olivia Gillen agrees with me a little bit. Is that, yeah, you know, if we had the budget of the U.S. military, we could do this from the ground. Um, myself, sure, why not? You yeah. Know, we can do maybe, one less know, aircraft you, carrier, one more you know, mega telescope. You know, you know, for, you know, for the, Price of the entire fleet of F twenty two is we can do a lot, right? <laughs> but um, I think feasibly, feasibly to get a reflected light detection of a true Earth trend around a sun like star within within the expected budget and the expected human power thrown at the problem from the uh, is probably is um, that's probably something that's going to take space to require us to do. Okay, but we can uh, we can get. Um, a, perhaps a thermal uh, emission detection of an Earth around a sun-like star from the ground, um, like at about 10 microns or so. You know, and so the contrast for an Earth around a sun at 10 microns is only 10 minus 7 at... at right. At, but now we're back to a young Earth that has got internal heat, a, like a magma hellscape going around a young star. No, 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 no. This would be like this would be for a true Earth. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then that's that's because you know, you know just you know from Planck radiation, you know the black body of something 250, 300 Kelvin peaks pretty close to about 10 microns, and so we're 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 kind of being helped by by that. Also, there's the signature of ozone as a broad feature at 10 microns that could be a potential biomarker. You know, so that could, might be possible around about a dozen stars or so within so there's essentially about a dozen stars close enough to us that but but again we don't have to worry about them being lined up now we can just take the pictures directly exactly yeah. exactly yeah so then let's go to space what is what is the space version of this look like so so space is also extremely exciting so the, the mission that i'm most excited about right now is the roman space telescope you know so you know our essentially our former or borrowed uh, spy satellite telescope and uh, this this uh, telescope has as a component the chronographic instrument, which is being treated as a technology demonstrator. 
not so much as a science instrument. So what they're going to try to do is demonstrate for the first time ever active wafer control in space to be able to get to contrast below 10 to the minus 7. So below what we can feasibly do from the ground with a CAC or a VLT or a Subaru uh, in, in you know, any time in the near future. Right. It's interesting to me. I mean, the the Nancy Grace Roman telescope, it's the same size as Hubble has a much wider field of view. But then it's being given all of these much more kind of aggressive goals to characterize dark energy to find potentially hundreds of 1000s of exoplanets through micro lensing to and so on and so forth. Is it the instruments? What makes it special to be able to to do this kind of work? And especially what you're talking about. Sure. Well, I, I can I can speak, prim, you know, you know, about the uh, high contrast imaging capabilities for Roman. So what what it has what Roman will be equipped with is essentially an AO system in space, uh, and then it will do something called focal plane wavelength control. So instead of you know an atmosphere that's blurring starlight, you figure out how the starlight is being blurred, and you use a mirror to correct for that. No, you're actually looking at the uh, science plane itself to figure out, you know, where the sort of residual glare of the star is, and then modulating two deformable mirrors to be able to remove that at the at the science plane. Wow! Right? Yeah, it's crazy. And 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 because you know there's no atmosphere, you know, you have a different source of uh, of aberrations. These operate slowly. You know, so it's a kind of a different regime than than on on the ground. But they're still able. In principle, um, you know, if we believe the uh, the laboratory tests thus far from JPL, uh, we should be able to get to ten to the minus nine contrasts in space with the uh, Roman Space Telescope at you know at uh, sub arc second separations, which right. is a factor of ten to the four better than what we could do with with the Hubble Space Telescope. But, but I guess it says that we have these additional mirrors in an advanced chronograph. Yeah, but I guess I'm a little I'm a little confused. So, like with adaptive optics here on Earth, you are deforming your mirror with pistons to essentially the atmospheric perturbations that you're detecting with a guide star. And but you're out in space. And so there's no atmosphere. So what are you? What are you modifying your mirror against? Mm -hmm. Sure. So so there's still so a couple there are two things. So there's still additional optical you know, aberrations due to any optical system. You know, no optical system is perfect, right? And the other thing is that, you know, if you, if you just have a, uh, you know, just an unocculted image of the star and say the, the optics are perfect, you know, it will look like, you know, the Fourier transform or the pupil function. It will just, you know, like for a circular aperture, it will look like, you know, an airy disk, right? So you can use the, the deformable mirror to dig a dark hole to essentially to reform the way in which light is distributed, to be able to see much deeper than you could uh, without um, the uh, the manipulation of, of those of those mirrors. Right. I mean, I know that say for with coronagraphs, like part of the magic of the coronagraphs is taking the light from the star and then interfering itself with itself to know what to remove. And and but it's a fairly fuzzy kind of messy process with a lot of of light that bleeds out through your attempted interference. So I mean, is that part of it? Or I'm completely off base here. No, the chronograph does do a lot of heavy lifting as well. And so yeah. so with the chronograph, you know, so the different um, um, chronograph masks that are that are being deployed, 
uh, for Roman. And so one of them is the hybrid Leo chronograph, which is basically a really souped up version of the Leo chronograph that we know and love that will get much deeper contrast than, than that, you know, the older design that's been around, you know, for, for decades. Another one is this crazy thing of the shaped pupil chronograph, which, you know, has this sort of like strange pattern, which, which throws light out of, uh, uh, out of a region in which you want to be able to look for, uh, for planets. And so, yeah, the, the advanced chronograph technology is a key component of uh, uh, the Roman Space Telescope's high contrast imaging capability. And thus, you know, something that's really crucial uh, to, uh, to be working well, if we want to be able to image planets in reflective light, which we think we can do with uh, Roman Space Telescope. So this is all great, but 12 stars, maybe from the ground, Roman's going to get a pretty wide view, going to have a really tricky time. So, so now we're going to have to move beyond what's planned, what's, what's in engineering right now. What's it going to take to look in all directions to observe the stars and go, no planets there, no planets there. Oh, we've got an Earth sized planet over there in the habitable zone. That's interesting. Uh, you know, Super James Webb follow up on that one. Keep going. What's it what's it going to take to give us a better survey of of what's really out there directly? Sure. sure. So we need the both we need both the ground and space to be able to do this. And we also need other techniques for planet detection to be able to do this. Uh, so from the ground, um, again, the 30 meter class telescopes will get us, um, you know, if, if they work as we think they will, they will get us the contrast we need to be able to image uh, planets and reflect light around M stars, which are the most abundant types of stars in the galaxy. And so the, and, um, I think I did some calculations for, for a paper a few years ago on the order of about 20 or so uh, M dwarfs would have um, a, an Earth, a detectable Earth around them in the habitable zone if, if such planets existed, and uh, we, we targeted them. Now, for sun-like stars, we do need you know, a dedicated flagship mission for imaging in Earth. And so that would be the successor to the Roman Space Telescope, the kind of mission that, has, that was recommended as a top priority from the uh, 2020 uh, Decadal Survey, uh, the sort of uh, LUVAX or whatever you want to call it, like a, a very large... <laughs> Yeah, is that the new acronym that half Louvoir, half Habex, all telescope? It's sort of in between Louvoir and Habex in terms in terms of aperture. So I'm going to call it Louvex. No, I, that's I, good. I, I I think that might actually be the sort of colloquial name for it at this point. But the basic point is that NASA is prioritizing exactly what you described. You know, a dedicated Earth imaging mission uh, to be able to identify a true Earth twin around a sun-like star and reflect the light and get evidence for. Um, for habitability, or at least to be able to test for that hypothesis. So this would be like a James Webb-ish sized telescope, but with Roman style uh, detectors and maybe a star shade too. I think this is fairly close, and so it'd be the the nominal aperture is roughly the size of the James James Webb Space, Space Telescope, but the key suite, the sort of our arsenal of uh, of uh, instrumentation would foot would lean heavily into the types of things we are we are trying to prove for the first time with Roman Space Telescope. So active wafer control in space, very aggressive uh, chronograph masks to be able to get extremely deep contrast. Those two things will be critical. And that's, that's kind of what we have in mind for a, a direct imaging flagship mission. And how how much of a sphere do you think that a, that kind of a flagship mission Lubex 
would would be able to detect. I mean, in terms of like out to what distance? Yeah, um, yeah. I'm just sort of imagining, sure. you know, you talk about 12, 20. How far do you think you'd be able to go? Sure, sure, sure. I, I, I think I would have to go back to um, what the yield estimates are for Habex and Louvoir, uh, which are kind of, kind of sort of our bound, are a little bit of our, our boundary conditions, worst possible, but on the order of tens of, of, uh, of Earth-like planets, give it our estimate, estimates for the frequency of rocky planets in, in the habitable zone. Um, and to be, and also just to emphasize this point, um, having sort of precursor information of these systems with the indirect methods, with radio velocity, especially, possibly with astrometry, that will be very helpful, right? Because you could have a direct imaging system that could image a planet one trillion times fainter than the star, but if the planet just happens to be behind the star at the moment you target it, Right. It doesn't matter, right? So you, you're having this sort of ancillary information uh, in in hand, sorry, you know, this, this information in hand before you try to target the star uh, will will be very very helpful. But but then you're sort of then going back to relying on the planets that you've discovered using the radial velocity method or using the uh, using the you know using the transit method, which is say one percent of the of the star systems that are out there happen to be lined up to the point. And it totally discounts the the planets that are really far away from the star, the chances of them lining up are, are remote, and the timelines to be able to see them orbiting around their star, again, stretch off into the decades, if you're gonna try and find another Jupiter, you got to wait 30 years to get three observations. So, so what would it take to be able to do a survey? Sure, sure. So, okay, so I'll try to answer both those questions in turn. So, yeah, you know, the um, probability of a chance alignment for, of an Earth around a star detectable by the transit method is, is pretty low, as for, especially for, for a sun-like star. But, you know, again, the radio velocity method uh, is still advancing. We're trying to do better and better beating down the systematic noise from, um, from a host star. Uh, there are rocky planets we've detected through the radio velocity method that are, um, you know, that start to get pretty close to what we want to be able to directly image. And so that I think after another decade or so of advancement with uh, with RV, uh, we will we will start to have uh, a fair number of good candidates to be able to to focus on with our direct imaging uh, instruments. The other thing too for Jupiter-like planets, uh, those those might be even more uh, more possible with uh, for 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 direct imaging once we have precursor data with astrometry. Right. Yes. So right now there's this uh, uh, south, you know, there's a mission that's up, that's up in space taking data called Gaia with the European Space Agency, which has exceptional precision. For micro arcs, you know, on the orders like a few, few or maybe a ten micro arc second precision in, in astrometry, that's good enough to detect a the signature of a Jupiter Jupiter-like planet at a few, you know, a few AU or so around nearby stars. And so if we have these two, if we have precursor data. From, from radio velocity and from astrometry, um, we should be able to identify enough systems uh, to be able to to be able to directly image an Earth or a Jupiter or things in between. Hmm. So the so the so Gaia. I mean, we're still waiting on that next big data release from from Gaia, the one with all the planets. But in theory, there are tens of thousands of extrasolar planet candidates in that Gaia data that haven't been teased out and you I guess you've got these stars that are p 
pulling little circles around in the sky because the planet is is yanking them around. But but we're seeing it at a completely different angle, one that we couldn't detect with any of the other with the other systems. So so do you feel like you could take that Gaia data to and it, and the closer the stars are, the louder the signal is going to be, and then that will be your your list to go through of exciting candidates. Oh, I think certainly certainly for uh, Jovian mass planets, I think we're already there. So, for example, if you look at some of the the planets that have been directly imaged, HR eight seven nine nine E, Beta Pic B. Those have detectable, um, those induce detectable astrometric accelerations on their host star, identifiable from Gaia. So we're already there with those. Hmm. And so it's really just a matter of time uh, before we uh, identify a, um, a planet through both astrometry and direct imaging. That's only, that's only a matter of time, and um, you will not have to wait very long for that. So. So yeah, so that I, I think that's that's right around the corner. And so, what do you think? You know, we sort of imagine this. We're on this journey of planetary exploration, and you know, back in many planets that are actually lined up, as I mentioned earlier. So, what really will carry the? What is the future of planet hunting and planet observing over the next few decades? Do you think? Well, I think that you know there are a couple of innovations that we're starting to see. One is combining techniques, and so you can have you know a long-term radio velocity, for example, long-term radio velocity drift, right? But you don't know quite what that is. But if you combine it with astrometry, which is you know is is a different technique, but also is sensitive to a dynamical influence of the companion, that can be very very helpful. So you'll see the combinations of techniques, which uh, which will start to carry carry the uh, the weight. I'm actually, you know, to be honest, though, I'm actually more excited right now about the ability to identify things that spur uh, substantial follow-up characterization. So not just simply bean counting, not just saying, well, right. we have 5,000 planets and we have 10,000, 20,000, 40,000, 100,000, but to actually understand these as, you know, as you know, full-fledged uh, astrophysical objects, right? So understanding not just simply, you know, that they're there and that they orbit their stars, but what the orbit is like. Are there other planets in this system? Do they show evidence for orbital resonance? Are they eccentric? What are their atmospheres? Do they show evidence for uh, oxygen or, sorry, no, like carbon monoxide or, or methane? Um, what are their gravities? Do they show evidence for clouds? So like the first directly imaged planet, planetary system, you know, HR8799 has spurred so many follow-up um, papers focused on trying to understand its atmosphere. So imagine doing that for 25 directly imaged planets, <laughs> and then 50, and yeah. 100. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll be dealing with a flood of data. And I think you know, we will start to see the numbers of directly imaged planets pick up in the next uh, five, five years, um, you know, and many more uh, detailed, detailed studies. I mean, I'm, so I'm, I'm really most interested in that, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm right now. I'm almost, I'm at, I'm definitely at the point now where if someone announces the discovery of new planets, I'm like, mm, that's not really news, and we don't we don't run it on universe today unless something really interesting has has happened or there's a really cool picture to go along with it. So let's say that we did find a really interesting planet, and we wanted to understand that one planet really well. And instead of building various survey telescopes to try and find lots of them, we wanted to just the equivalent of sending a rover to the to this 
to this planet. What is the telescopic version of, of, of that that could get us as much detail as humanly possible in some really interesting some world where we're seeing some kind of interesting biosignature, you know, sea land formations, mountains, what what would what would sort of what could we do? Well, I, I think it really depends on the type of the type of the planet uh, that, that you're focusing on. Um, so I'll, I'll start with with it's another Earth. Okay, another Earth. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I, I think we, we want uh, a couple of things. First of all, we want some some dynamical mass estimates. We want some const, you know constraints on the on the orbit due to the planet's influence on the star. So this really calls out for indirect techniques that are sensitive to that. So either RV or, or astrometry. And so a dedicated RV or astrometric uh, campaign can be able to uh, tease out this information in detail. We want to be able to also understand um, you know, this, the atmospheric properties of, of this planet. So we need not just simply a detection in some uh, broadband paths, but we need a spectrum. So an integral field spectrograph would be uh, ideal. If we really had a, you know, a large telescope and we're willing to throw a lot of time at this, which it sounds like that, that's what you're having. Yeah, yeah, one telescope, it's only job. It only has one target. Its only job is to observe this, oh yes. This one so planet, we, yeah, yeah. So we, we would want an IFS with a low resolution mode and also a very high resolution mode. You know, so be able to get resolve different uh, spectral lines themselves. But we've done this um, already with the first directly imaged planets. And so you know, there was a, this really amazing paper um, by uh, you know, some of my uh, collaborators slash competitors uh, with on H8799C that resolved uh, outlines for carbon monoxide and methane, and then try to connect that to the formation process of, of that planet. You know, so that's something that kind of thing is what I would like to do. We'd like to do with an Earth-like planet, really high spectral resolution. You know, someday in the future where that where that would be possible uh, to be able to get even more detailed information about its atmospheric properties. You know, and then also just to kind of put the system in context. You know, so you know if if we had aliens looking at the Earth, sorry, aliens look at the, the solar system and their telescope was infinitely powerful, they wouldn't just simply see the planets, they would see the Kuiper belt, they would see the asteroid, you know, potentially the asteroid belt, you know, and try to understand the, the, um, the way in which the leftovers of planet formation and the planets themselves interact. And so that'd be another, another component I'd be interested in. And that might require uh, a telescope that is capable of, uh, of doing high contrast imaging at different wavelengths than we would normally try to focus on for imaging the planet itself. Would it be a space telescope, do you think? I think it probably would have to be a space telescope, I think, at this point, to, to really to do all of that. Yeah. But just to be very, very clear, the ground will be able to do, you know, a substantial amount of transformative science. And I am, uh, I'm, I, I feel like it's a fairly reasonable possibility that the ground would get the first direct image of a uh, of an exo earth around uh, around one of the nearest low mass stars I, I think that's that's a that's a fairly uh, plausible uh, scenario in the future so I have I have a I have a weird question that goes back to the sort of this original uh, the original star the original planet observation that you made this double Neptune distance for the existence of the planet that sounds remarkably similar to a hypothesized planet nine here in the in the solar system, you know, at that same kind of of distance. Is it possible that we could, you know, if we did have a planet nine, that is 
you know, rumored to be a Uranus Neptune mass planet orbiting out double triple the distance of, of Pluto. Could it be possible that it followed that same formation method at that distance as opposed to the more standard method? I think probably the best people to ask, ask the question to would be some theorists. My, my initial reaction is that that would be difficult uh, because the, the disk instability uh, mechanism does really good at making massive planets. It starts to struggle a bit to be able to form planets that are lower and lower and lower mass. It almost has like the opposite problem a bit than, uh, than, than core accretion. Um, so, yeah. all right. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a shot. Maybe, maybe we, we got a theory for planet nine, but, but maybe not. Yeah. Uh, well, then absolutely fascinating. If people want to follow your work, what is the best way to, uh, to keep track of what you're doing? Sure. So I do have a Twitter account that I uh, tweet on, uh, um, you know, science results all the time. Uh, it's Astrothane. So A-S-T-R-O-T-H-A-Y-N-E. And so just, uh, that's my handle. You can follow me there. I think there are other other good sources for um, for for following uh, exoplanet uh, exoplanet news. So there are, you know, there are astronomy Facebook groups. Um, you know, if you're a professional astronomer, there's also the exoplanet direct imaging group. So there there are a lot of outlets to kind of keep up to date. And the other thing I I do I, I read the archive every you know, almost every day, like you know, just like the newspaper. And I always yeah. look through you know in, very interesting uh, papers in my field and even even in, in adjacent fields. So that's, uh, I, would I would encourage readers to do that. Yeah, but yeah, also, they're, if you, they're yeah. surprisingly readable. I find like, you know, even though my background is in computer science, yeah. um, you can read and go, you can read the introduction, you can sort of, your eyes can haze over the middle part and then you can read the conclusion and understand what it, what they're proposing or what has been discovered quite, quite readily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, if you, if you have a question, you know, if, if there's something related to this paper or one that is similar or sort of the general topic of direct imaging, direct imaging, you can just send me an email and I'll um, be happy to respond. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for for answering my questions and uh, letting me kind of express my enthusiasm for for direct imaging. I'm, I'm super excited about where this field goes, because I feel like this is the one that gets us to that to that other earth and obviously that's sort of the holy grail for for a lot of the people who are really excited about about exoplanets so thank you so much for continuing on this science and hopefully you'll get that that telescope that next generation telescope that's going to do what you need yeah exactly awesome all right well thank, thank, thank you so much and uh, and good luck with your work thank you all right take care and find the button